This morning, we return to our series in Psalms after being away, what was it, six weeks as we went through Sundays in July. And we enjoyed that Sundays in July. I did. I enjoyed the folks that came to the seminars that I did. But now we're going to joylessly, no, joyfully return to our mini-series that we have within the series. It's a series within the series about the Psalms, which I think is the most quoted, most often memorized psalm of maybe all the psalms. That is Psalm 51, the magnificent 51st psalm. And as we come again to examine this great psalm, it's important that we understand how Psalm 51 in particular has a very special message for several groups of different people here this morning. First, we are told that this psalm is for those who have never come to grips with the horror of human sin, have never come to the grips of the magnitude of divine grace that assists that. Often grace becomes meaningless to so many people and certainly less than amazing as we so often sing because we lose sight of the depth of our depravity, so we lose sight of the depth of the grace of God. Second, this psalm is for those who think some people are just too holy and too righteous to ever, ever fall. Well, that's not true. Let us never forget that this psalm describes the experience of David, king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. And so if he could fall, certainly we can fall as well. Third, this psalm is also for those who think that once you have fallen, you can never get back up again. It's for those who think it's possible to fall beyond the reach of God's grace and forgiveness. No one is so holy that he or she can't fall, nor so fallen that he or she can't be forgiven. And that's what the psalm teaches us as well. So we have explored this over and over again. We have looked at what it is that God has given us. And now we come to even a fourth element here, a fourth person that this psalm really represents. And that is those who think that if you have fallen and you actually have gotten back up, perhaps even been forgiven by God as you are rising up, still now you are useless to the church, useless to the Lord and that now there's nothing left for you. Yes, you're forgiven. Yes, you've been restored, but your usefulness is gone. That's not true either, because we shall see the fallen King David. The great King David had much to offer Yahweh after the days of his great sin. So we come to this psalm this morning that really addresses each and every one of us in different contexts where we live, who have come first and foremost face-to-face with ourselves, We have come face to face with the fact that we have grasped the great reality of our need for forgiveness and know that both before salvation and during sanctification, we needed to be forgiven of our unbelief. We were forgiven by God's grace, and then we need to be forgiven every single day that we fall into sin, as well as now those who long for a model for a man or a woman who has fallen into sin and that can remind us of the fact that there is a journey back to God. There's a journey back to right usefulness, right standing to Him. So if you were with us in the past, you know that we have come now to the fourth part of our examination of this psalm. And so there's a little bit of need of review here this morning. That's probably going to be the case until I can completely go through this psalm. I'm going to set the table for the lessons that we have before us this morning. Now, as we have explored in depth, and you can always go to gracechurch.org and go to Joint Heirs and find those other three sermons. 
we know that Psalm 51 comes to us with a historical reminder in what is called the superscription. The superscription is that little almost introduction that you will see above some of the Psalms, not all of the Psalms, which is inspired. It is an inspired work of God that explains something sometimes either about the orchestration of the Psalm as a musical number or the history behind it. And for us in this particular Psalm, Psalm 51, we see in its inspired titled The Circumstances That Drove King David to Write This Song for the People of God. And it comes in the form of an autobiographical incident that David had experienced, an infamous incident in biblical circles, namely his adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. If you want a full record of that scandalous affair, go back, I would direct you to 2 Samuel chapter 12, where the Holy Spirit has chronicled the entire event for us there. It is there that we discover that the circumstances surrounding the authorship of this psalm, the psalm that David has penned, is much more than just about his adultery. It's clearly the superscription points out that that's what happened and that is the impetus for the psalm itself, but also what the superscription points out to us as we learn is that it really talks about an entire period of time that David had in his life that encompassed the death of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, as well as the confrontation by David of David by the prophet Nathan, as well as the judgment of David's newborn son with Bathsheba. In fact, his whole family, the judgment that comes down on him, both the child that was born and died and the children that would come after. So if our calculations are right, and I think we are, that is, this psalm was penned sometime after Nathan's confrontation of David in 2 Samuel 12, 15, and before the child's death that was recorded in 2 Samuel 12, 19. So sometime between that seven day that it took David's son to die, sometime within that lifespan of four verses, this psalm of confession was penned by David. Why do I say that? Why do I bring that up as something that's important for you to know? Because after the boy died, after David's son was taken by the Lord, David arose from the ground, you remember the scripture, washed and anointed himself. He had been prostrate. He had been crying, weeping before the Lord on his face, changed his clothes, and now worshiped God. So no longer by that time was David pleading with God to save his son, to change his mind. No longer was David wrestling in tears before the Almighty God to twist the arm of Yahweh. Now, David had to move on and deal with the consequences of his sin. He had to continue his rule as king over Israel and his role as husband to Bathsheba. David had to move on, and he knew he had to move on from this wickedness onto the rest of what God had determined for his life. But the seven days before that, from the moment Nathan the prophet left the room in 2 Samuel 12, 15 to the end of his son's life, we have here in Psalm 51, David's only preoccupation of his soul, which was to not allow his son to die on account of what he had done. This is what it took to burst the bubble of pride and treachery in David's heart. This is what it took for his son to come to the point of extermination 
for a man of lust and deceit and selfishness and bloodshed to come to his senses and to fall before the Lord in repentance. And so that's what we have here in these words. These words come to us after almost a year, get that, almost a year of King David falling headlong into sin, almost a year where he had silenced the screaming conscience within his soul because now the weight of his sins come crashing down upon his head and David writes Psalm 51 for all of us to understand. So the words that we're about to study and have been studying are words that flow from this agony in his heart. These verses are here for us today, are verses that are the product of massive grief, massive pain and guilt and shame that so completely engulfed King David that his sin had become known that the title of this series has been the desperate plea of a broken man because that's what this psalm is about, the desperate plea of a broken man. And you could counter that with saying in the gracious answer of an almighty God. For over a year, come think of it with me, for over a year he had said nothing to anyone. David had sinned, he had committed adultery, he had committed murder vicariously, and he had not spoken a word of it. For over a year, he didn't confess anything to Bathsheba, his wife, though she knew of the adultery, obviously, but whether or not she knew of his plot to murder her husband, we cannot know. He confessed nothing to God himself. He, he didn't go before the Lord. He confessed nothing even to his own soul, we might be able to say, though he knew what the truth in his inner man. And yet nothing concerning the weightiness of his wickedness could ever form a sentence in his mouth, even though his body, we find out in Psalm 32, was wasting away until finally he could confess and ask for forgiveness. And so we come to this psalm with a particular kind of knowledge of this horrific crime that had taken place and remembrance of David's final confession of sin before Nathan had confronted him with Yahweh's accusation as we come to this section. So let me just read this psalm to you to refresh your memory of it in its entirety. And then I'm going to take it piece by piece and walk you through this as we grapple with the very important ramifications of this message to us. Psalm 51, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. 19 verses packed with theology and clarity and misery and anguish with the hope of forgiveness and restoration. So what we have here are seven aspects about God's person that I want you to understand that ties together Yahweh's forgiveness and man's repentance. There's certain aspects about God, truths about God, seven different areas about God that is intimately and tied to David's prayer for repentance. And I give these to you, uh, not only because they're reflected in the verses that are here, but also because when the day comes, and it will come, that's the nature of life. When the day comes when you and I must turn from our sin, when the day comes when everything you tried to gain for yourself through sin, is lost and and crumbles before you when your family and your friends and ambition and dreams all come crashing down upon your shoulders, these seven truths will help you as remember about God and repentance, the guide that they give you and the guide that they gave David in his journey back to God. And I'm going to give them to you. You don't necessarily need to write them down now because I'm going to go through them very slowly as we do this together. But let me state them up front. We're going to see in verses 1 and 2, God's compassion is our only ground for petition. We see David speaking that way about God's compassion. Number two, God's character is our primary reason for confession in verses 3 and 4. We see in verses 5 and 6, God's commands are our fundamental incentive for transformation. We see in verses 7 and 8, God's chastening is our singular means for purification. We see in verses 9 and 13, God's creation is our only hope for restoration. Verses 14 through 17, God's closeness is our main motivation in contrition. And lastly, God's consecration is our ongoing plea for generations in verse 18 and 19. And some of you might have noticed, because some of you are just so meticulous and just writing down every single thing, and every single time I come after I preach, you're you're making sure that every jot and tittle has been uh, crossed and dotted, and I appreciate that. But you're going to notice that in our time away, I've slightly altered some of my points. And so if you come up and you go, "Ah, ah, ah, ah," you know, just so you know, I know, I did it, I know, Uh, because I'm trying to make it more accurate in the way that it's expressed and confessing that this far we've only covered two of the seven points in the messages that we've already delivered, so I've had some time to rethink some of it. 
if you weren't here, the first message that we gave was just an in-depth overview of the details of the history of the psalm. I did for the first time, I think, maybe anybody here has ever done this, I did an exposition of the superscription of Psalm 51, and that took our entire first time together. And then the second message, I ultimately covered just the first point, and then the third message gave us a glimpse into the second point. So you can see that my pace here is regulated more by my curiosity than by my speed. Um, But today we come to the third truth, the third truth concerning God and repentance, which we're going to look at after just a brief review of what we've seen so far, because it's very important that we build in the context. So the first thing that we saw a few messages ago, number one, that God's compassion is our only ground for petition. God's compassion is our only ground for petition. And we see that as David says in verses one and two, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see the connection there between God's compassion and David's incentive to petition God. David knew that he couldn't pay for the sins he had committed. David knew that the baby boy that had been born to him couldn't be a substitute in any kind of lasting way if he died. That only Yahweh can provide forgiveness that he needed. That only Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, can take away the sin of a fallen king. But nevertheless, in this moment, as he's writing thousands of years ago, David may have known that his sin was forgiven. He may have known that God had provided that lamb whom he did not know but was to be promised in the future. But his petition, what he's speaking here before Yahweh, was to have compassion on him in view of the consequences of his sin. So here is David completely engulfed in the truth of his own sin, feeling the consequences for what he has done, touching the lives of all the people closest to him. And so he cries out to Yahweh for his compassion to blot out my sin because only Yahweh, holy God, can be sought to do such a tremendous work in the life of a believer, in the life of anyone pre-salvation or post So more than my sin being taken away, more than my life not having to die, I need compassion. I need compassion on the deepest level to reverberate all through my sinful life and make me whole again. So David pictures himself before God as this wrapped in dirty, polluted clothing kind of man in need of help, in need of deep, deep cleansing and washing. So he's asking God in so many words to beat the dirt out of him. He says, wash me thoroughly, thoroughly in the English means fully, completely carried out to completion, to the nth degree, being complete in all respects. And I say beat because of the ancient washing method of laundering clothes was to soak them and, and beat them and wring them out and rinse them. It's very intense. It's not fluffy where you put a little thing in the washer that makes them all soft and nice. It has to do, which is an amazing thing, praise the Lord, because otherwise your towels would be like sandpaper. But you are, you are sitting there saying, Lord, beat it out of me, that sin that's within me. And the only way that that can happen, and he's so, so clear, would be that the compassion of God would be found upon his soul. It's the compassion, that knowledge that God has compassion that drives him to speak. 
Next, David goes on to say that not only is God's compassion so vital for his ability to even speak to God, but also, number two, God's character is our primary reason for confession. Not only is his compassion the reason that we even speak, but number two, God's character is the main reason that we even confess. And I say that because look at verses three and four. He goes on to say, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Again, let me draw your attention to this phrase, I know. He says, again, in verses 3 through, I know my transgressions. I know them. The reason I am confessing is because I know my transgressions before you, God. I know it intellectually. I know it physically. As you remember from our study in Psalm 32, he was breaking down physically in the midst of his sin and the repression of his sin, the unconfession of his iniquity. David's sin had captured his skin. David's sin had wrapped its way all around his body like a spiritual bow constrictor and squeezed him and and depleted him, and he felt it. He knew it. He drained him. For over a year, he denied his sin. And some of you understand what I'm speaking about. Sometimes you're walking down the street, you're going through the motions of your daily life, and the sin that so heavily weights you down is with you, and no one can tell it maybe on the outside. Maybe you've become so good at realizing that on the outside, if you smile, then everybody will think all is fine, but they don't know that on the inside that you're dying and that your sin is taking a toll. It's taking a toll not just on your health, it's taking a on your mental ability to even form thoughts because you are walking in sin. And David was evident of that. He, he was dying. Maybe some of the people around him knew that. Maybe every time he walked by a mirror, it was reflected back to him that he is in that unconfessed state of sin. It says in verse 3 of Psalm 51, it was ever before him. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I I can't move to the left or to the right without it being expressed and exposed. I know it. I have to confess it. Must have been a time when he didn't know it. He had, as unbelieving people do, even though he was a believer, pushed it down deep into his soul. The blood of Uriah was not soaked into his clothes, so he couldn't be reminded of in that way. It wasn't as if, as he was walking around, he had the Bathsheba and the whispers of the fact that she was in his bedchamber any longer being heard because she's his wife, and no one now could actually say that in public without being shamed themselves. He he could hear the crying of his newborn in the other room, and they were crying for hunger and life, but not the cries of pain and death that he felt. So for a while, David even let himself know his own sin. David completely compartmentalized. He completely shut it down. He completely allowed himself not to see his sin as standing before him like a ghost, like a shadow that followed him everywhere he went. And he was a master of it. I just got through seeing a documentary about a certain sports figure, not to publicly shame him, but his life has been a shame, where he has so well compartmentalized 
every aspect of his life for the goal of becoming a great athlete that he now can have all sorts of hideous sin that is going on that eventually was discovered because everywhere you go, there you are. And as Pastor John MacArthur always says, that time and truth go hand in hand. It does come out and it does surface. But the mastery of being able to take sin and to push it aside and to pretend that all is well and to be accepting the accolades of other people when deep down inside you know that something very dangerous is happening to you. Something very deceitful is forming in your own soul. And that's exactly what was happening to King David. Somehow his pride, his deceit, have him glimpse God just for a moment and then would hide back into his soul. He, he had to see God. I'm not saying physically he had to see God. He, he wasn't like Moses and Yahweh, where he would see the the Shekinah glory and the train of his glory walk past him. But David knew, David knew the writings, David knew what it was that was ever before him, his sin, because he knew, as all kings needed to know, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 17, kings were told to write their own copy of the Torah. We know that he understood the Torah, he walked with the Torah, it was before him, So at a time, almost a year into his sin, after Nathan's confrontation of him, he realized, he realized there was a moment that God had mercy on him and he, his mind opened to the fact that he was in dreadful sin against Yahweh. And he's going to mention that in verse four, but before even when David's sin became evident to his own soul, there was a moment when he wouldn't admit it. He says, I was, he he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil that's in your sight. He was told that his sin eventually would affect his family. He was told that it was personal. It was beyond his sin as a king. It was a sin as a father. And Nathan had told him that he was to give back the son to God because the son would die. And that's what it took. And please hear me on this. That's what it took to strike him deeply. That's what it took to cut him to the core Maybe more than all of his sins of the nation and Uriah's family. And, and it was the deep realization that his son would suffer as a consequence for his own sin. And that idea trickled down into his family. And it opened his eyes to his sin and turned him to repentance. You know, sometimes, just as a sidebar here, sometimes the sinfulness of sin is not as evident to us. Sometimes in our lives than others. Sometimes it takes this physical kind of deterioration of the body to kind of mirror the spiritual devastation of the soul. And David saw himself finally as a criminal and he understood his need because he was guilty. And so at the core of this, at the core, listen, was David's realization concerning Yahweh's character. It was Yahweh's character that drove him to this repentance. Why do I say that? Well, again, verse 4, against you. This is so important. Against you, and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. David's sin, listen, was ever before David, for David's God was ever before David. There's no way that he could eventually, after a year, compartmentalize the sin from the Savior. David's failure was not because he didn't consider how he had usurped his role as a king. He didn't fail because he didn't consider her body as belonging to her husband and his adultery was a theft. That wasn't even what crushed his soul. 
David's failure wasn't because he used a privilege as a king to make other people his private assassins as they killed Uriah. David's failure, listen, listen to this, is his failure to see sin and his transgressions as a direct result of the ramifications of sinning against a holy God. That's where you have to land. That's where we must land. David's failure, his sin, though all those other things were true, needed to pull the car over and park and meditate on the fact that he had sinned against his creator. David's sin was made evidence when he saw his sin against his father in heaven. I cannot emphasize that too much. David, as a son, had sinned against his heavenly father, and that sin against his heavenly father crushed his own son for what he had done. Again, I can't overstate it because of this one truth lies at the heart of why so many Christians are still in misery and unrepentance and self-deception, namely because they think they've repented for their sin. Uh, They think that possibly they have turned from their wrong, they've made things right with the other person, they've done what they could, They, they kind of follow the AA Alcoholics Anonymous mantra that says, admit to God, to oneself, and to one another human being the exact nature of your wrongs, even though their concept of God is not Yahweh God, so that flushes everything away, until you come face to face, not just that you admitted it to God and to others and to yourself, until you come face to face with the fact that you've sinned against God, and God only, first and foremost, then you have not repented. You have not repented of the most heinous part of your sin, and that is rebellion against the one that made you, the one that created you, the one that keeps you alive in this very moment, your heart beating as I speak, which leads us to the next truth about God. The next truth about God and repentance that expressed here in Psalm 51, not only is God's compassion vital to our ability to petition God, knowing he's compassionate. Not only is God's character, who he is as God, the primary reason for our confession towards God, but now, number three, God's commands, the next truth, God's commands are our fundamental incentive for transformation. Just write that down and explain that. God's commands are our fundamental incentive for transformation. And I'm going to point this out to you in just verses five and six. David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Even though David acknowledged his innate sinfulness, he is telling us, that he was drawn to God's demand for truthfulness, knowing that God would supply what was missing in his heart and that God's commands were his incentive for wanting transformation. Let me explain this. Now, I want you to notice in verses 5 and 6 that though I've used the word commands, there aren't any commands of God stated here directly. We don't read, be born in sin as a command. We don't read, I demand truth as a command here, but I am using the word command to illustrate that David understood as a backdrop to all of this, some very fundamental realities about God that guided his responses to his sin. And he understood 
that God had commanded as truth these commands for him, therefore he could repent. Uh, To say it a different way, what David is revealing to us here is that his personal knowledge of God's revelation that act as his motivation for change. What I know about God is the incentive, the motivation for my transformation, that his personal knowledge of his own innate sinfulness, number one, in contrast with what he knows about God's intrinsic sinlessness, drives him to say what he says here. Now, why do I say that? Because, listen, on your own, Ladies and gentlemen, friends and family, you cannot come up with the fact that babies are born in sin and God alone can fulfill the sinful heart with truth and make you feel joyful in your maker. That's that's not something that people naturally gravitate toward. You know this. You, You know, in fact, more than often, more often than not, I should say, in the culture in which we live, the way that you are born is seen as an irreversible right towards being whatever you want to be without question from anyone because you can always say, I was born that way. And when people say, I was born that way, it is shorthand for saying, I'm not going to change. No way, no how. This is the way I was made from the very beginning and therefore how I was born is my passport into every kind of sin imaginable. And you see this especially, of course, in the homosexual and transsexual community. The claim that I was born this way grants them carte blanche pass to act and live any way they want. They have no restricted power, have unrestricted power to act in one's own discretion. No uh, authority can trump them. They have unconditional authority for the fact they were born this way. That's their birthright to immorality. But that idea, I was born this way, is in direct opposition to the biblical truth that tells us what David knew from what he understood about God's revelation. We are born in sin, and that sin must be repented of, not given over to. So men and women, I don't know if you fully understand this or grasp this or want to know this, men and women are born adulterers. Men and women are born liars. They are born selfish and bent on idolatry. And though not everyone, of course, acts on those tendencies, we are nonetheless born with the proclivity to sin from the moment we enter into this world. And if you doubt that, you haven't had children. And that's what he's saying here in verse 5. He was brought forth, which means basically... He was twisted out. He was writhed out. It was, it's like it's a word for birth pains. Uh, the second word here, and my mother conceived me, it speaks literally of an animal in heat. He's not belittling his mother by saying this, though there are many commentators who have implied that David's mother had him as a result of immorality. I won't even go into the details of that because it's so far off base. He's not saying that it was a sinful thing for his mother and father to have borne children, nor was he saying that he had done something evil by being born. Rather, he is acknowledging just simply the human condition of his fallenness. This is who I am. This is how I was born, which was a part of the experience, his parents, and which he came into the world. So you know, or if you don't, this is a good morning to be here. He's expressing the doctrine of original sin. He's expressing, as you might assume, the doctrine that has been heatedly fought over for many, many thousands of years. 
Now, as we look at how David fully grasped the ugly side of his own humanness in relationship to what God has declared to be true, I think it might be a good place for us to say that the term original sin is often misunderstood in the church today. I want to do just a sidebar here for a moment. Some people assume that the term original sin must refer to just the first sin of Adam and Eve, uh, the, or, or the original that we've all copied in many different ways in our own lives. But that's actually not what the doctrine of original sin is referred to historically in the church. Rather, the doctrine of original sin defines the consequences of that first sin to the human race. It's, it's the consequence of what Adam and Eve had done to the entire human race, both now and always. Historically, virtually every church that has a creed or has a confession has agreed that something very serious happened to the human race as a result of the first sin. The first sin produced original sin. That is, as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, the entire human race fell so that Our nature as human beings since the fall has been influenced by the power of evil. So when David declares in verse 5, I was born in sin and in sin my mother did conceive me, he's not saying that it was a sinful thing for his mother and father to have born children, nor is he saying that he had done something evil by being born. Rather, he's acknowledging the human condition of fallenness, which is a part of the experience of his parents with which he himself came into the world. So original sin has to do with the fallen nature of mankind. The fallen nature, and the idea is that we're not sinners because we sin. Listen, that we sin because we're sinners, right? Very important distinction. It's not that we're sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, We are by nature sinners. Theologians call it total depravity. Borrowing from the work of our pastor's friend, R.C. Sproul, we learn that the historical situation in which the doctrine of total depravity first became a matter of great import and controversy was early in church history during the teaching ministry of Augustine. You might have heard about Pelagianism. You might have heard about the Pelagian controversy of the latter part of the 4th century into the 5th century. It began, just as you know or may not know, a British monk named Pelagius protested against a statement in one of the written prayers of Augustine. And in this prayer, Augustine said before God, God, command what thou wilt and grant what thou dost command. Command that which command what thou wouldst or would and grant what thou dost command. Command me and then grant me the ability. So Pelagius, of course, had no uh, reaction to the second, the first part of it. He had convulsions about the second part of the prayer. The reason for his disapproval was the first part of the prayer, oh God, command me whatever you want to command. There was no reason he would reject that. He was a pious monk, certainly agreed with. Augustine, that God had every right to exercise authority over his creatures and to command what was deemed pleasing to God concerning them. No, what exercised Pelagius was the second part of that prayer when Augustine asked God to grant what he commands. Command me and grant me what you command. Pelagius said that this assumes that the creature is morally unable to do the will of God, which is exactly David's point. Verse 6, 
You will make me know wisdom. I am born in sin. You will be the one that transformed me. You will be the one that makes me wise. It has to be God, listen, that grants David the wisdom and the truthfulness he needs because he was born in rebellion against God. It's as if David is saying this to God. I know from your word that you delight in truth. I know from your word that I have fallen as a man, even in the very fabric of my soul. But now I see clearly the truthfulness of both these realities. I am a sinner first and foremost. I have been redeemed through faith, a faith that was given to me, a faith that has changed me. But so much more change is needed in my life. I still sin. I have sinned so greatly. I have caused the death of my own child. I have caused the death of my own servant and the corruption of the mother of my child. So I see that without you, O God, I am destined for ruin. I am destined for ultimate destruction. And so I plead with you, O Yahweh, you who knows me and who has fashioned me to teach me What do you want me to be? And help me to cling to you and to cling to your forgiveness and to cling to your sacrifice that I have not seen to make me transform back into that which delights you and pleases you and lives for you. That's what he's praying in so many words. It was the great J.C. Ryle, one of the most important preachers in England's history, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon that leaves us this morning with this great exhortation and charge. And though it's quite lengthy, it's very important. People don't read J.C. Ryle as they ought, and so I will read him to you. The exhortation that shall be short, he says, cling to Christ. Cling to Christ, I say, and never forget your debt to him. Sinners, you were when you were first called by the Holy Ghost and fled to Jesus. Sinners, you have been ever, even at your bed from the day of your conversion. Sinners, you will find yourself in your dying hour having nothing to boast of in yourself. Then cling to Christ. Cling to Christ, I say, and make use of his atoning blood every day. Go to him every morning as your morning sacrifice and confess your need of his salvation. Go to him every night after the brussel of the day and plead for fresh absolution. Wash in the great fountain every evening. After all the defilement of contact with the world, he that is washed needeth not to wash his feet, but his feet need to be washed, John 13, 10. Cling to Christ, I say, and show the world how you love him. Show it by obedience to his commandments. Show it by conformity to his image. Show it by following his example. Make your master's cause lovely and beautiful before men by your own holiness of temper and conversation. Let the world see that he who is much forgiven is the man who loves much, and he who loves most is the man who does most for Christ. Cling to Christ, I say, and have a high thoughts of atonement made by his blood upon the cross. Think highly of his incarnation and his example. Think highly of his miracles and his words. Think highly of his resurrection and intercession and coming again. But think highest of all of Christ's sacrifice and the propitiation made by his death. Contend earnestly for the old faith concerning his atonement. 
see in the old doctrine that he died as a substitute for sinners, the only solution of a thousand passages in the Old Testament and a hundred passages in the New. Never, never be ashamed to let men know that you derive all your comfort from the atoning blood of Christ and from his substitute for you on the cross. Cling to Christ, I say lastly, and make much of the old foundational truths concerning salvation by his blood. These are the old friends to which our souls will turn at the last hour of our departure. These are the ancient doctrines on which we shall lean back our aching heads when life is ebbing away and death is in sight. We shall not ask ourselves whether we had been Episcopalians or Presbyterians, churchmen or dissenters. We shall not find comfort then in newfangled notions and human inventions, in baptism and churchmanship, in sex and parties, in ceremonies and forms. Nothing will do us good then but the blood of Christ. Nothing will support us then but the witness of the Spirit that in the blood of Jesus we have washed and by the blood we have been made clean. No one talks like that anymore. No one speaks that way anymore, but they should. And we want to hear that. And that's David's promise to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for yet another time in your word in Psalm 51. And though we know much more is to come, we have started in this examination to see ourselves in this passage We may not have ever committed the sins of David. We may not be guilty of murder or of sexual sin to the degree that he has. We were never usurping our role as the king of a country or of a nation like he did. But Lord, we see ourselves in this psalm and we see in him the fact that we too are born in sin that we must not remain the way we are. You have saved us. You have taken those who have repented and believed and transformed us away from this world into your son's kingdom. And yet we come with still rags on our feet. We still long to clean every inch of ourselves to be before you. So grant in this psalm, the instruction that we have just read and let it cling close to us as we cling close to Christ, that we see in your character the reason for repentance, that we see in your compassion the reason that we can draw near, and that we see even now in what we have even studied, that you are a great God, that your commandments, your truths guide us and lead us to the transformation that we so desperately need. Bless the preaching of your word to these people and let us be blessed because of it that we heard and believed and we repented for all that we need to do. We ask this in the name of the only one who can save us and the only one who can sustain us, your son, our Lord. It's in his name that we pray, amen.